On this week's episode of the Limehouse podcast, we have Natalie Bennett, former leader of the Green Party. Well, right. what, I mean, what you've got there is, is a very classic right-wing narrative. And what we've seen is your refugees and more broadly the whole issue of immigration. How can it possibly be that someone like Richard Branson could be making a profit out of caring for someone in the last days and hours of their life? And Dawn Barnes of the Liberal Democrats. But it literally is down to Labour and the Conservatives decade in and decade out and we need to have a big change. If we're going to have a big change, we need a change in the voting system and I don't see that happening anytime soon. Is it just my So wherever you are, please enjoy this episode of the Limehouse podcast. And if you feel like it, please rate us and review us wherever you fancy. You can also check us out on Facebook. And also, we're on Twitter at LimehousePod. Many thanks and enjoy the show. Yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do so welcome back to the limehouse podcast i hope you've been well i have been reasonably good yes i would say reasonably well i mean although it has well you know, it's got chilly again hasn't it but you know who gives a crap you know it's the winter what else do you expect i tell you what we do have here to warm the cockles of your heart yeah we've got we've got natalie bennett and dawn barnes so obviously you guys will know natalie bennett uh, from the the years she led the, the green party and uh, also you'll know Dawn Barnes from the many episodes she's been on the Limehouse podcast. And we, we talk about a, a, a whole range of things, really. We start off talking about the refugee crisis and we slowly wake up, work our way through quite a few topics. And I think you'll, you'll get a lot from this because it's not, you know, happy, clappy kind of a, uh, agreeing with one another, one another, patting each other on the back. There's, you know, there's, there's a bit of back and forth between Natalie and Dawn. And and it's interesting to hear the two sort of smaller parties in 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 our parliamentary circles in our in our way of life to sort of to figure out how, where where they stand on certain things when they I don't know you could presume a lot of people sometimes presume that hey why don't you all just get along and just join up and all become friends and family and uh, maybe some of you do maybe some of you don't you know maybe I'm jumping the gun there. But either way, it's good to hear what they they have to say, and uh, how 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 opinions differ. But yeah, so I'm going to bring you that conversation pretty pretty soon. But yeah, if you do feel like rating us on iTunes and uh, sharing the episode with with any of your friends and family, that'd be fantastic. I know plenty of you've been doing that with the um, 
with the previous episode, uh, we talked NHS there pretty heavily, and I hope you got you got a lot from that. It was really cool to talk to uh, Marie Louise Irvine um, and uh, Amna Ahmed there because again, two slightly differing positions on the NHS and the um, the crisis that it's in and how we can resolve the the, the issues, the problems that we're, we're facing. And I found yeah, I just found it really kind of cool i hope maybe you you want to carry on listening to that and sharing it where, where you can and, and what have you and also maybe check out some of the other previous episodes lord adonis i don't know nick clegg natasha devon natasha devon any one of them anyway nothing on my waffling i hope you're good and i hope you're gonna feel even better after this conversation so look without any further ado i will see you on the other side and i will leave you in the capable hands of natalie and dawn many thanks bye bye Um, right, okay, I'm here with Dawn Barnes and Natalie Bennett. Uh, say hello. Hello. <laughs> hello. Yeah, and obviously listeners can say hello if they want to, but they might get looked at strangely. Um, right, okay, we're going to jump straight in, I think, because um, as I was in a cafe earlier uh, in the driving rain with the dogs tied up to posts, and I started thinking about what to what to you know talk about and mainly I suppose from a liberal democrat perspective we were talking heavily about when Tim Farron was uh, sort of not I don't know when he was fronting the party uh, we used to talk a lot about the refugee crisis and I feel like as a party it's probably gone off the agenda slightly but Jonathan Bartley was speaking about uh, speaking about the uh, Calais crisis well the refugee crisis over there um where where are we then from a Green Party's perspective on that at the moment? Well, basically, Jonathan and Caroline, our two co-leaders now, are saying the same sort of things that I was saying when I was leader until 2016, is Britain should be welcoming our fair share of refugees. And Jonathan was recently in Calais highlighting the situation that it's kind of very much gone off the um, the agenda, the news agenda. But we think about what the weather is like now in all parts of Britain. And what the weather is like in Calais is broadly the same. Uh, it's And we have people who are being pursued by the French police. Um, people who are trying to get them food and shelter are being harassed, being chased away. We have people living in the most desperate circumstances. And those are people who we know, you know in many cases have a right or a good reason to be able to get to Britain, but they're simply not able to get to Britain. Mm. And, you know, it was a couple of years ago now, but we've seen more cases not quite so well documented and certainly not so well covered. But I was at a memorial service um, for a child who had the right to come to Britain, just couldn't find any way to actually get a mechanism, and who died in the back of a lorry. Mm. And people are dying you know, on a regular basis now trying to get to Britain and we have a huge responsibility for that and we you know, we have a responsibility in terms of that we rank very low in terms of Europe number of refugees per head of population uh, but also we have a special responsibility when we think of the main countries these refugees are coming from we're talking about Syria Iraq and Afghanistan and it's our foreign policies that have helped to create the situations in those countries, have helped create the, the misery people are having to live in, having to escape from. So we have a particular responsibility to be welcoming our fair share of refugees. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Dawn? The Liberal Democrats, during the 2017 election and the position hasn't changed, <clears throat> said that we should be welcoming more Syrian refugees 
into the country for sure. And personally, I've been, I guess, lucky enough to be able to give a job to one who sought, successfully sought asylum. And she's wonderful. She's a brilliant member of staff. She couldn't be better. And the stories I hear from her and how she'll be some weekends when it's been a bad weekend in Aleppo or whatever, you know, her parents are still there, her aunt and her aunt's family are in Germany, and she's on her own here as well. So once you get from Calais, if you're in that situation, it's difficult once you're here because you're isolated, you're trying to build new relationships, you're trying to get work, the Home Office messed her papers up, and I spent ages on the phone to try and get them sorted out because she was sofa surfing, because she couldn't get Mm. a property... She couldn't rent until she had the correct papers. A good job, a, a properly paid job, the kind of job where you can rent in London. Um, not buy, you know, let's calm yeah. down there. But um, the kind of job you can rent decently in London, and she couldn't. So she sofa served for five months because yeah. the Home Office had messed up getting her the correct papers. They'd only given her half of them, and they should have kept them all together in the first place. Yeah. And I guess it was just because I happened to be in the office and to understand that I was able to make an argument for her. And it is really, really tough. So after you've been through all of that and you get your asylum, then you have to start from scratch and your family is still in in those cities that are affected and it's just devastating. I mean, what, what's, um, what is the, the, the main... I mean, people talk about barriers, you know, mental and physical. I mean, what we're looking at right now is this... It has shunted to the, to the back of the agenda, certainly because of Brexit, and that is something that just keeps on coming up with this podcast, how... not so much the NHS right now because of obviously the crisis that is going on and you just take a look at the headlines but the refugee crisis that's gone to the back of the pile isn't it partly though because they dispersed, broke up the Calais camp and I know that it continues to exist and it hasn't gone away as it has been suggested but there was a story that it had gone basically and I think the media believed that and they've not really looked at it in detail anymore and of course because of Brexit Mm. or the NHS crisis something that's happening across the water does seem to get a little ignored I think it came up again uh, last week because we had the visit from Macron and he was talking about the refugee crisis again but but I think also we do have a problem that the media has a very short attention span I used to be editor of the Guardian Weekly which probably had a longer attention span than most publications but it is very hard to keep a continual focus and I think one of the things that we have seen and it is good to see some parts of the media focusing on this is there has been a focus on what's known in the shorthand as Theresa May's hostile environment for migrants Mm. and we have seen a real focus on situations of you know people for example I've seen a couple of cases the Guardian's covered very well from people from Jamaica who've lived in this country for decades and clearly you have the right to be here but because they struggle to prove it struggle to have the paperwork and people are actually you know getting to the point of being detained in detention centres. And I think one of the things that we have seen quite a lot of focus on recently, and, you know, I I live in Sheffield, and um, we've got a very strong group there that really focuses on immigration detention centres. And there's been a good focus on the fact that immigration detention, and it's still so little known that Britain is the only country Mm. in Europe that has indefinite immigration detention. And people are being locked up, people who've not committed or even been accused of any crime, people are locked up indefinitely in very often privatised institutions in awful conditions without proper mental health care or health care at all. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we had Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, was promising that they weren't going to lock up pregnant women anymore. 
and yet we're still locking up pregnant women in indefinite immigration detention. And separating them from their families as well. They are literally treated like prisoners in many, yeah. many, many times. <laughs> and the fact is actually you, well certainly if you look at Yarlswood where most of the yes. women were held, you know, 70% of those people will eventually get some kind of right to remain. But we're treating them like criminals in the meantime yeah. and causing you know, huge damage to people's health and well-being. But it's amazing that you would want to stay after that. I mean, what a welcome to the country. You escape whatever you've left. And let's be honest, to get what you can carry mm. and take dangerous routes across sea and land with people who will exploit you, you land somewhere and you think, "My, you know, I'm here, I'm here, this is wonderful. And then you get put into a detention centre you really are in the worst possible place. You have no options and you have to try and make a life when you get out. But there must be resentment there when you've been treated so badly. Um, what about um, also the... There, there, there was an article that I uh, stumbled across on Facebook this week. I say article, it was just spite-filled spite <coughs> nonsense. The, it had a picture of a, a chap, um, maybe of Pakistani origin, uh, and, and he... And he was just in the street, topless, with his tracksuit bottoms on and giving the Vs to the camera. Could have been anyone. Could have been any lad. And then in another picture, the two pensioners that had been evicted from their house by the council for whatever known reason. But it said underneath the picture of the topless lad that he was in a £1.2 million mansion was a refugee. Um, And, you know, what's the state of this country coming to? I mean, I, I... uh, well, I, what, when what you've got there is is a very classic right wing narrative, and what we've seen is you know, refugees and more broadly the whole issue of immigration. Um, when I knock on people's doors, and you know, depending on the area, if I ask an open ended question, what are you concerned about? Unsurprisingly, to varying degrees, you get the answer of immigration. But then when I ask people, but what does that mean? What how does that affect your life? What's the issue behind that? I usually get one of three answers, which is. Low wages, crowded schools and hospitals. My kids can't get a council house. Housing's too expensive. And my response to that is all of those things are perfectly right, reasonable. You should be not just concerned but angry about those things. But they're not caused by immigration. They're caused by failed government policies. Mm. Uh, you know, Privatisation of the NHS, underfunding of the NHS, an inadequate minimum wage, inadequately enforced somehow to under 25-year-olds don't need to live. They can live on less money somehow miraculously. Um, and, you know, housing, we've relied on the market to supply housing for decades and it's failed. But, of course, the problem is those are the policies of the two successive governments or more than two successive governments of different hues. So you know, we don't get that narrative challenged and it hasn't been historically challenged, you know, particularly by the two largest parties in the way it should have been over a decade or more. Yeah. So it's been embedded in people's heads. And when they think, you know, I'm angry about the NHS, they just fed all of the wrong reasons. And, you know, one of the things that I think is encouraging is it's changing. You know, Carillion has definitely helped. You know, I've been saying, you know, the profit motive has no place in healthcare for a very long time. And I mm. think that's getting more and more traction as people are saying, why are, you know, for example, they're letting contracts for care for older people, which includes end of life care. Mm. How can it possibly be that someone like Richard Branson could be making a profit yeah. out of caring for someone in the last days and hours of their life? Yeah, well, that, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I, I mean, it's it's almost too much to keep on top of, to be perfectly honest. I don't know how you guys do it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but 
Um, but just I, to come back on that, it isn't just the governments either. I mean, locally where I live in Harringay, North London, there are new developments taking place and we desperately need housing. And there was a development now, it must be about 10 or 11 years ago, where you had a mix of private dwellings and then you have a social block, which is sadly... Uh, accessed by some dark alley and they don't have any cycle storage and no parking space for visitors so no, no bit... one has poor doors yeah, yes exactly poor doors um but when the development went in some of what the liberal democrats were saying locally was will there be another doctor's surgery because you're putting this many new people in you're going to need that can there be extra buses on the route what about local schools which at the time the local council did provide school places and now that's not the case and so you've got these planning decisions that have taken place across the country where you're promised that there's going to be a doctor's surgery or extra school places, and they don't happen, they don't materialise. And then you've got all of these people who've moved in, they're delighted they've got a home, they've got no resources around it, and then the other residents are annoyed because there's further pressure on the services that already exist. So it's the councils as well as the government. It's the whole infrastructure, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, but, but I think coming back to your point of how does one sort of stay positive and on top of it all, uh, because I think it's an important one, because there is a lot of despair out there at the moment. You know, people feeling like it's such a mess, Brexit, everything else. But I think you, if you think about the nature of political change, real political change happens in big jumps. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen slowly and gradually. And what we've had is 35 or 40 years of neoliberalism, neo-Thatcherism, call it what you like. Uh, but people you know, really don't believe. I don't meet anybody who believes in privatisation of public services no, anymore. No, it's just an awful word. I mean, you look at you know, railways. I mean, even back in 2015, a majority of Tory voters believed in public ownership of the railways. That's even higher now. And so we're at a point now where you know, we've got all these crises happening at the same time, and that can make you feel like, you know, We haven't mentioned the environmental crisis yet, but that's obvious, I'm sure, to everyone listening. Um, We've got the social crisis of food banks, low wages, insecurity, zero-hours contracts. The system is broken and it will have to change. And so the good news is that what we can actually do now, people are looking for change, they're looking for new ideas. Mm. We can build something entirely new and different, and that change can happen very fast. If you think about when Thatcher was elected, there was massive change that happened in a a few years we're now at the point where we're going to undo change a lot of what was done in that period and build something different. So, you know, we can stop trashing the planet and build a decent society where no one fears not being able to put food on the table, keep a roof over their head. And now is exactly the time to do it. Whereas when I joined the Green Party back in 2006, and if you remember back then, Gordon Brown had abolished boom and bust and it was all going to be fine, uh, then... um, Telling people we need to change things was hard then. Saying to people we need to change, we can't continue as we are, is now actually, now's the time people want to listen, hungry for different ways of doing things. I mean, I would say, I don't want you know, I would say that that's, um, you can see that within the um, enthusiasm behind Jeremy Corbyn that's that's coming out of, you know, I think that is, that's, I know some people would say vaguely populist attention to that. Perhaps that's, driven in I don't know they're not here to defend themselves so I'm not going to go into it too heavily but there is an appetite for change that cannot be ignored specifically because he got elected and he's doing he is kicking seven tons of you know what out of Theresa May at least today he was is it Wednesday yeah it is Wednesday Wednesday. and and I think there is a message to parties from the left centre left that 
that can make progress. It's the opportunity to have another election, though, which, having just gone through more elections than I want to think about in the last few years, may seem like a daunting prospect. But our voting system isn't overly helpful. I mean, you'll know as well that as much as we like to get... I would say not overly helpful is is an extreme (laughs) understatement, to be honest. Not overly helpful. (laughs) As you know, you know, we are not getting very many MPs elected and you have this two-party system, more or less, with a few others around the edges. But it literally is down to Labour and the Conservatives decade in and decade out and we need to have a big change if we're going to have a big change we need a change in the voting system and i don't see that happening anytime soon well we've found something to disagree on so that's always good for the purposes of the podcast anyway because i think we are going to see massive change towards a fair voting system i hope you're right we, we, we do not have a democracy now if you look at the last election the electoral reform society calculated this 68 percent of votes in the last election didn't count 28% 28% uh, you know, 20% of people said that they were um, voting tactically yeah. but since the polls were so wrong lots of them will have been voting tactically without, with actually based on, on false starter and false premises. If you go back to the 15 election the Green Party got 1.1 million votes which was more votes than we got in every previous general election added together but we still only got one seat whereas mm. in a fair voting system uh, we would have got 25 seats yep. uh, but you know, we are Again, when we compare ourselves to the rest of Europe, look at, say, the Scandinavian countries. They have proportional fair voting systems. They're far better governed. They have, you know, they care for their disadvantaged, um, they're disabled, they're ill far better. They care for their young far better. They've got health systems that are properly funded. Mm. Um, and you, I was actually at, at, at a meeting of a wonderful organisation called Make Votes Matter, which is really yes. coming up and coming forward, particularly lots of young people getting engaged in the call for a fair voting system. Uh, and it was actually, an, a, 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 I think old would be a fair description, Lib Dem peer, uh, who sort of said, well, you know, we can, do, we can get proportional representation when we have a political crisis. To which my response was, when we have a political (laughs) crisis, we very clearly have a huge political crisis now. And that's why I believe we will see change very soon. And also, we've got a great opportunity. This year is the centenary of women getting the vote. Yes, it is. Um, And there's going to be lots of focus on that. And that's a great time to say, well, we got the vote for some women back then. Uh, What we can do now is get a democracy because we're not a democracy now. Sorry, Dawn, do you want to add anything to, to Pete? To no, this is an area where we very much agree with the Greens and we desperately do need a change because we need to have more representation. And, you know, equally, it may well benefit parties like UKIP, but if that is better representation of the way that people in Who? the country vote, then that is a democracy. Yeah. They so apparently still a, do exist. Apart, are you... you you want to avoid those, do you? You know, I just don't know who they are. <laughs> um, well, well, I think, it, but it's worth saying that you people. I think you can say the first past the vote, the first past the post system, was actually one of the key causes of the result of the of the Brexit yeah. referendum. Lots of people felt like they hadn't been listened to for decades, and they were absolutely right, and they wanted to take back control on a first uh, past the post vote. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and they wanted to take back control. They knew their vote would count in the referendum in the way it didn't usually. They wanted to use it to kick the establishment. And all of those things, you know, they were right to want to take back control. My argument is we use the take back control hashtag to call for a fair voting system making Britain a democracy. And the advantages, I know you're going to find this a surprise, but the advantages of getting people like UKIP elected is that there were lots of UKIP councillors across the country. 
and we've seen the work that they do residents have experienced it directly and they've gone to the ballot box and got rid of them mm. and there's are there one two there's three councillors left that's it in the whole country yeah so again proportional representation may deliver some that we may find undesirable for a while but it is very likely that they will be unelected because they'll they'll prove themselves in the job we don't suffer fools gladly in this country <laughs> that's for sure but i'd say because you know smaller parties how how do you affect change without okay the system we're in at the moment mm-hmm. how well, does caroline in, in 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 the house of commons how do the you know 12 mps at the lib dems have how does it how do you guys go about doing that what the green party has is a very traditional position which is and i can cite a couple of examples to start with which is 20 mile per hour speed limits where people live work and shop a decade or so ago, we proposed that and people said, oh, it's those radical greens with their way out ideas. Now, that's an utterly mainstream position. The city of London, the least radical place you can possibly imagine, is now entirely 20 mile per hour speed limits. A decade ago, we said everybody should get a living wage. If you work full time, you should earn enough money to live on. Again, it's those radical greens way out ideas. And yet George Osborne, a couple of years ago, conceded the principle, although failed to deliver the reality, by calling the minimum wage what I call George Osborne's fake living wage. But nonetheless, the principle was conceded that we should have a living wage. So we traditionally have proposed things. And, you know, 10 years ago, we were talking about air pollution. No one else was. Now everybody's talking about air pollution. But what I would argue is that we're in such a state of crisis now, economic, social, environmental, political that we can't wait those 10 years anymore. We've got to elect Greens yeah. to actually do them right now. No, I agree with you completely. Dawn, do you have anything to come back on? We've that? had a, a slightly different experience more recently of being a part of a government. And we did deliver some policies that we'd always stuck by and wanted to do, such as raising the amount of money you could earn before you paid income tax. And then there was the Nick Clegg policy about the five pence on on plastic bags, which everybody told him he was also crazy to be pursuing. And now we're talking about coffee cups seriously. I mean, I don't think we talk about enough environmental issues seriously. I think no. the Conservatives have happily undone a lot of the things that we introduced when we were in the coalition, uh, such as the Green Infrastructure Bank, and we don't produce as much renewable energy as we did, um, which is going backwards. That was under, was Chris Hune? Uh, yes, and then yeah, Ed Davey. Yeah. yeah, Ed Davey, okay, yeah. I should know that. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, though, I mean, the plastics is a very interesting one because actually I, I moved a motion at Green Party Conference a couple of conferences back. You, It's great that we're talking about plastic bags and, you know, cotton bud sticks <clears throat> and plastic straws, but we've choked our planet with plastic and we have to go much further. Yeah. So we're calling for a ban on single-use plastics. We have to. We can't just pick off one item after another, and you know, in a couple of decades, the kind of time frame mm-hmm. Theresa May is talking about. You, know, we have to act much faster in and terms of transforming our economy. I think London does lead the way in. in, in and I think Sadiq Khan does need a, a bit of praise on that. I just saw, like, I know it's an obvious thing. My wife's been banging on about it for a long time about how you know there should be water fountains where people can refill yeah. their plastic bottles. She's 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 really good at that. She never, you know, she's amazing at reusing plastic bottles. The the waste, oh my, oh my god. So, this is terribly um, London of me, but my gym has just um, installed a machine that tells you how many plastic bottles have been saved by your refilling. And I was very excited yesterday. It's not been there for very long. And we're at 10,999. So it's one of those numbers where it's going to flip over. But it kind of makes you happy when you're filling your water bottle up. Yes, it's another bottle down. But when I was a kid, 
we used to have the glass bottles. And I remember I had three siblings and my sister was older and way too cool to get cross about getting the deposit back on the bottles, but used to get 20 pence a bottle. And we used to have three bottles a week of fizzy drinks. And me and my two brothers would fight over who was going to take them back to the shop because my mum would let us keep the 60 pence. So we used to have a very strict rotor system. But something like that, you know, some parents really need the extra 60 pence as part of their budget. Others, it's a treat for their children. But the fact is, those bottles are leaving your house and going back to be washed and reused. Mm. And we have come so far backwards. That would have been in the 1980s. Oh, yeah. uh, we're fighting uh, over those. Uh, uh, and whenever I tweet about this, and you know, we've been calling for a bottle deposit scheme for plastic bottles for a long while, um, uh, you, I get people from all the over the rest of continental Europe going, you haven't got one? Theresa May said we can't have one when they were talking about their recent... But, but it Big is changes. But it is also worth worth looking at this. Is you know Germany, which has you know as good a system of, of deposit on what are known as PET, the most yes. easily recycled plastic bottles. Um, Germany still only best system you can imagine. You know, there's recycling bins bins where you can get your, your deposit back everywhere. Still only recir- recycles ninety three percent of PET bottles. So we really have to think. You know, that's part of the solution. But we really have to think in, in that whole waste hierarchy. Mm. We've got to think very hard about reduction as well as yeah. recycling. I mean, um, so the, the obvious question really is, well, not question, but observation, I suppose, is we're, we're heading out of the European Union, apparently. Now, um, look, I'm I glad mean, you said apparently. They yeah, um, I have had in the past few days so many conversations about Brexit. But and whenever I say we're heading out of the European Union... Even in a jokey way, I do get shouted down, which is fine. That's great. In an optimistic way, I might add. But environmentally, which is your strong suit and yours as well, Dawn, I'm sure. What what's the what's the future look like? Uh, well, I think I've, I've got to challenge your premise to start off with. Oh, and by the <laughs> way, no, no more table tapping, Natalie. All right, I won't okay. tap the table. Well, there's a cloth on the table. I, I thought that. it would be all right. You very sensitive. <laughs> yeah. All right, okay. Very sensitive, like me. All right, okay. Um, apologies for the table tapping earlier. Um, uh, in terms of Brexit, first of all, I think you know, the Green Party we're calling for a ratification referendum. There was no kind of recipe. Um, for what Brexit would look like. The only democratic choice is once we've negotiated whatever's negotiated, that people have the choice to say whether that's what they want or not. I, I've i been gradually increasing this percentage. I think there's now about a 50% chance of a second referendum, a ratification referendum. Uh, I think there's probably something like a 30% chance that Brexit won't happen. So let's not make any assumption that this is automatically going to be the case. Mm. If, however, it does happen... Um, you, it's very clear that Britain historically used to, before we joined, were part part of the of the, of the whole continent wide arrangements. Um, Britain was known as the dirty man of Europe, and now I was at the Oxford Real Farming Conference listening to Michael Gove very much playing to his audience as Environment Secretary, you know, saying, "Oh, I want to defend the standards of British food." But we've also seen Liam Fox going, "Well, I don't see anything wrong with chlorine washed chicken." And all of, you know, America has absolutely dreadful health-threatening standards or non-standards in all sorts of things about agriculture and food. Um, Now, if we're desperately seeking a trade deal with the US, um, I spent a lot of time campaigning against the proposed EU-US free trade deal known as TTIP. We risk getting TTIP on steroids of writing off all those standards, all the things people have spent decades fighting for under Mm. the EU... And, of course, if we're going to stand up to the big multinational companies 
and say we demand decent standards. It's an awful lot easier to do that as part of a continent than it is as one country that's a relatively small part of their do you, markets. Do you feel, and Dawn, you, maybe I'll put this to you first, do you feel that... Um, the, the the environmental issue is is a part of people's consciousness when it comes to exiting the European Union. Do you think people have even contemplated that? I can say that where I live, yes. I can't speak for the rest of the UK for sure. But certainly where I live, the environment is a very big issue with people on the doorstep. And air pollution, air quality is a big thing. Again, I think we managed to, in London, go way over our EU levels for the year within the first week again yeah, as yeah. usual as we do every year and in Sheffield you know people think this is a London problem but in Sheffield we're in a very similar situation we have a huge air pollution problem for example so well of course and you're in them um, a bit of a bowl aren't you so it and we have you know huge motorways and yes and it's of course as usual it's the poorest areas that are the worst affected and it's quite hilly so very bad for asthma before you even start with the air pollution as yeah. my grandmother lived there and had asthma so we remember that from when i was little but yeah certainly um we we have gone way over those limits already so by leaving the eu will the uk if we leave the eu of course will the uk have limits will we care anymore and our ability to influence as part of europe was much greater if we leave the European Union, and I very much hope that we do not do that, but if we do, whatever our environmental policies are, we are a really tiny island. There's 60, 65 million of us. How do we begin to influence as a block people like the US and China and Russia? Because we are nobody, whereas when we're part of Europe, the conversations are much bigger and you're looking at a much bigger block of people and countries and different cultures able to change the way that they deal with the environment yeah. and that's that's something i'm very worried about and again it does come up on doorsteps yeah yeah N- natalie did I, I i put that question to dawn i can't remember if i put it to you and i can't even remember what the question was so <laughs> uh, well i i think I, i've talked quite a bit about you know the risk of us becoming the dirty man of europe again yeah and, and i think you know, those standards it's worth saying you know, people fought for those standards it's one of the things that we need to to talk about is you know we often talk about Brussels and Brussels decided this and Brussels decided that. But if you look at the European fishing policy, which traditionally was a few decades back very poor, but there was a lot of campaigning against things like you know, that you can't discard catches of non-target species, you can't kill lots of fish and then, and then just throw them away. Hmm. That was a public campaign. You look at the public campaigns on neonicotinoid pesticides that are killing our bees. Public campaigns... We've actually seen people from across Europe and something the Greens very much fought for is a real development of European-wide petitions mm. um, that are having an impact. And one of the things that you know, I said, I don't very often get in the uh, Daily Express, but during the referendum campaign, <laughs> I uh, said that the EU is more democratic than Westminster and that did get me in the Daily Express. Um, but you, there's structures and ways of making decisions in Europe that are actually far better and far more democratic than the structures we have. And one of the things that I think it's really important to talk about and you know, perhaps for your listeners to think about is if there is a second referendum, a ratification referendum, we need to think about starting the campaign for that now. And we need a Remain campaign that looks very, very different from the main Remain campaign last time. And I'm calling for a people's campaign, a people's Europe campaign, where you know, people who value being part of the EU explain why that is to other people. And not, as we had David Cameron saying, oh, well, the economists say it'll be worse and that means you should vote and believe me, which didn't work out well. Well, it was just arrogance, wasn't it? But I suppose um, I was chatting with AC Grayling and it came to me when I was having a chat with him that it seems like the Remain campaign is now where it should have been back in, you know, June 2016. 
Um, I mean, it's getting way more refined. It's getting way more on message. Do you think that there should be just like a co- cohesive sort of right, right, the the centre ground, left, whatever, they get to get together and they go, right, we're launching a, a Remain camp. We are launching the second referendum campaign and we're just going to play it now until it, you know, whenever they A say. referendum on the final deal, not a second referendum. Yeah. That's really yeah. important because people yeah. get really cross, you know. There are, and it has been hugely divisive, and there are people that voted to leave and they stand by that decision. They say, we've had that referendum. Well, fine, we have had that referendum. And you won narrowly. But this is about what the deal is, because there are people that voted to leave that are unhappy with what's happened since. And they can see that it's not necessarily going to be a good deal and they're changing their mind. Equally, there are people from the Remain side that are changing their mind. But I'm very hopeful that there are more people thinking it is important that we do stay in. And you're right has to be more than just about the economy. In one of the really simple things for me, and it's not some great, strong argument, but it's actually just liking my neighbours. I'm, I'm originally from the north of England, and we speak to our neighbours, and I still speak to bus drivers, and I'm on a one-woman mission to chat to bus drivers across London, and they respond back, and I think they like it when someone speaks to them during the day. Yeah, of course. You know? Yeah, yeah. And just having a relationship with your neighbours, our closest neighbours are just across the channel in France and Holland and Germany. They're not far away. They're where we generally holiday. They're the people we do the most business with. And a lot of us have friends and family there, either British born and have moved or friends that we've met uh, through university, through school, through work. So Mm. why are we pushing our neighbours away? And that's just a really simple argument. Before you get into the economy and the environment and everything else, they're our neighbours. We need to care about the people nearest to us. Absolutely. And I think you said, you know, should should there be, I don't think there'll be one single campaign, but there's lots of groups. And I've done some work with with groups of UK citizens who live in the other parts of the EU. And I was actually standing in about um, foot deep snow in Brussels with a rally from people who were were saying, you know, fair, safe for all was the hashtag. One of the things they were very angry about was the rules disenfranchise lots of them from participating in Mm -hmm. the referendum. And of course, (laughs) And, of course, also EU citizens who've lived here and made their lives here, who are part of our society, who get a vote in local elections, didn't have a vote in the referendum. So I think, you know, getting that grassroots upwards-led campaigns, and it may not be one campaign, but people who can say, you know, this is totally messing around with my life, my children's lives, they're the people who should be at the forefront. And people who are saying, hey, I campaigned for the near span." And I'm really proud that we got it across Europe and I want to keep it. So really focus on what people have done from the grassroots rather than something that's a top-down, politician-led... Yeah, I couldn't agree anymore. That's my sentiments completely. I absolutely... I had a chat with Jonathan Bartley and that was kind of like along those lines. I really, really love that sentiment. I was just just thinking, though, um, in terms of Westminster and, and small party politics, not small party, but, you know... Smaller parties, how not the two largest parties, <laughs> <Let's go. laughs> yeah, not the two largest parties. How and you know, I'll just I'll just be frank. I mean, how do you go about changing things as as parties, especially after the two thousand seventeen general election, where Lib Dems that yet yeah, increased members in the House of Commons, but uh, sorry, MPs rather, but also lost, you know, the vote share. And the Greens, I know, suffer quite heavily as well. What, I mean, is it all just literally going, are the people from looking left, are they looking Corbyn? What's going on there? Well, Labour are a mess about the European Union. They really are. And you see on Question Time regularly that, 
whoever's been put up this week will get asked questions about it and they struggle to answer because the Labour Party is still split over this. I mean, from a smaller party point of view, from the Liberal Democrat point of view, we have always been of the view that, given that the vote has been to leave, we want to have a referendum on what the options are at the end of the day. And we've stuck by that. Now, there are some Labour politicians that also agree with us. There are some Conservatives that do. Even, I'm beginning to worry about mentioning this again, but Nigel Farage has said he would want one. For maybe a different reason, but at least it's part of the democratic process. And of course the Greens do as well. So we have stuck to that and it is growing in popularity. There There has been some polling done within the last month or so that suggests that people do want to have a say on what that final deal looks like. Mm. And again, I'm very hopeful that they vote what I would call the right way for us to remain and to sack off any terrible deal that the Tories come up with. But it is democracy and they may not. But I do think we need to to sort out the Remain campaign because the messages were not clear. Mm. And if you talk about the the Leave messages, if you think about the Leave messages, and I'll put it to the listeners to do that, I bet you can come up with two or three Leave messages more quickly than you can with two or three Remain messages. And that is a sad indictment on the Remain campaign. Yeah, so basically I just wanted just to try and get to the to the bottom of how parties effectively, when the public are looking at them as completely irrelevant now, how they affect change. It won't surprise you that I'm going to disagree with the premise of your question Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I think people are really looking around for different ideas. And if I just take you an example, last week I was in Coventry speaking to the Skeptics in the Pub um, group, which is a group that has all sorts of talks on different subjects. And I was talking about universal basic income, a long-term Green Party policy. Uh, And we had probably three times the average number of people who come to one of their normal events. We had enormous amount of enthusiasm. In fact, one of the questions then was, aren't we supposed to be sceptics and why are we being cheerleaders? Um, so people are really hungry. And you know, as you said, Dawn, Labour and also the Tories are actually hugely split, hugely divided. You know, I, I'm afraid, you know, it has been, it's true to say, I think it's fair to say that the word coalition has got something of a bad odour in Britain in recent years. But actually what we have is two coalitions, the Labour Party and the Tory Party, in which there's huge variety of views on Brexit. There's also a huge variety of views on social issues, huge variety of views on economics. Um, you know, we have, I had to look this up, but Rachel Reeves is still a Labour MP. This is the woman who said, uh, we don't want to, re- the Labour Party does not want to represent the unemployed. Um, and so we have at the moment a right political mess. Now, we've already talked about how we need a fair voting system, we need to become a democracy. But even if that doesn't happen, I don't think there's any guarantee that in five or ten, even five years' time, that Labour and Tory will still be together, will still be the two Mm. largest parties. We're in a time of massive political change. And, you know, forgive me, Dawn, but if you go back to, you know, there was a period when it was Tories and Liberals, and then the Liberals almost disappeared very quickly in a short period of time. And it's not impossible that you could see that happen to both of what are now our two largest parties. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I would say that the, the more... I mean, depending on how things change, the political landscape and people's perception of things change, we could be having a rainbow coalition of some description un- under the Labour government. Would you prefer that over a Tory government as, as a Green? As a, as a Green? I, as I said when I, when I was leader, and I'm sure our leaders now would say exactly the same thing, we will do everything possible to stop having a Tory government. And I'd suppose you'd probably say the same. Well, there is crossover with both parties, yeah. and there are things we fundamentally disagree with. So a coalition by its very nature is a negotiation. 
And whether that is with the Labour Party or with the Conservative Party, there are always going to be areas of huge disagreement and you have to try and get the best deal that you can. And that's partly why we had a coalition with the Conservatives. It's partly to do with the numbers and how they worked. And we did push to get through some of the things that we managed to get and we didn't get everything that we'd have liked. But then again, we were 57 MPs. Yeah. Um, and it would be equally difficult with Labour for us to be in a coalition with them on our own. A rainbow coalition would be different again. You've got lots of different parties to find your areas of agreement and what you can push forward. And then you probably, given the system at the moment, will have a party that is very dominant within that coalition. Yeah. But it's it's possible and it'd be interesting to do it. And I do think we could really see some some serious change. And there's almost a part of me that wants to talk about grand coalitions again, because for me, the prospect of leaving the European Union is a real crisis. And actually, if we keep pulling one way or another and being, you know, aggressive toward each other, that's not going to help. And I do think that we could, you know, it wasn't legally binding, the referendum. And I do think if people got together and talked seriously, there might be a different way. Well, I suppose I I don't entirely agree with that because I think... I said that the first past the post electoral system was one cause of the um, the result of the referendum, but I don't think there's any doubt that austerity, neoliberal approaches, uh, a refusal to make rich individuals and multinational companies pay their taxes, is another strong cause behind the Brexit vote, and so we have to get away from neo Thatcherite policies. Mm-hmm. We have to move. You know, one of the things I would say is that I think centrist politics is dead because centrist politics implies leaving things more or less as they are now. And there's a survey that's been done for many decades that I think demonstrates just how much people get. We can't leave things the same. People are asked if their children or grandchildren will have a better life than they've had. And those surveys are increasingly massively negative. People understand the need for real change. Yeah. So I don't think any kind of centrist ma- message of just, you know, we'll leave things as they are, but just fiddle around a little bit, is going to hold up. We need to to be campaigning against austerity. We need to be saying that, you know, companies like Amazon are parasites that aren't paying their way. We need to be saying that we should have a real living wage paid to everyone, not just people over the age of 25. Decent benefits should be paid gladly to everyone who needs them. Now, though, that is all very strong political positions, and we have to make those cases. But I, I think this is middle ground, and I think that actually you've got a perception of centrism, which perhaps is, is what it is at the moment. But you could talk the same way about feminism, because there was a time when being a feminist, you couldn't say that. It was almost a dirty word. And it had been taken over by, I guess, kind of extreme people. And mm. now it's okay to be a feminist again. And I think it's the same with the mm. centre ground. I think a lot of people are in the centre ground. And it's not just about tinkering around the edges. It's about getting agreement and, and doing these things that make a difference to our lives. So whether that is building more council homes, which I think is absolutely critical, and we're kidding ourselves that affordable homes and all of this make any difference whatsoever, then I think that you will get people to agree. And I think that is a relatively centrist policy. If you look at what happened after the Second World War, I think it's 50% of the country lived in, in council homes. And I don't see why that isn't possible again, given that we do have a crisis in our housing, for example. Unfortunately, that, I don't think that's the view of large parts, for example, of the Labour Party. It's what's generally seen as a, as a left-wing position. Um, and, you know, I think but that is really massive change. And, I, and I, I'm afraid I, I can't see massive change can be defined as centrist. But I don't think that council housing is necessarily a huge left-wing policy. It may traditionally have been that. Certainly where I live at the moment, we're fighting the privatisation of our council homes, which is going to be done, potentially, by a Labour council unless it can be stopped. That's in Haringey and in large parts of South London as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And we do need to build these houses and we do need to have other options for people. You know, you can look at the, I think the average salary, this is a 2010 figure, but I bet it's not changed much. So if you were earning £45,000 or more, you're in the top 10% of earners in the country. Now, £45,000, top 10%, you ought to be able to afford a home. And in London, you know, you can be on an MP salary and you will probably struggle to get a one bedroom flat in large parts of the city. So something isn't right and something isn't working. House prices are hugely overinflated and we really do need to bring those down. We need sensible policies to do that. And it might be a mix of council homes. It might be a mix of homes for for rent, both in the private sector and the social sector. But we need to find a way to solve this because people cannot continue to live like this. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, we need the council homes. And what we also need to do is ensure that private sector rentals which will make up a significant part for some time to come that people have genuine security of tenure absolutely uh, that they can have have rent controls that people can you know simply live in a place and make it their home because one of the things we're seeing is increasing number of people with children are being forced to live in rented accommodation and if you're forced to move every six months or a year because your landlord wants to hike the rent or wants to throw you out because you actually had the uh, you know the hide to complain that perhaps they could fix the windows which are leaking all everything you, you heat the air up out they leak out the leaky windows we have a situation where Mm. people you know in large parts of continental europe significant percentages of people rent and they're perfectly happy because they're long-term stable secure homes at at, at a genuinely affordable level but it's not disruptive just for the the families in the houses it's also the schools and all the children around them because Mm. in where i live certainly you do get quite a huge turnover and the schools have children coming in and out as well which is partly why when the liberal democrats are in government the pupil premium was to follow the child around so that as they moved from school to school, if they were going to, and it's more likely with poorer children because they're more likely to be renting, then there would be money for them and for their education. But it just affects every single thing in your whole life. If you don't have a place to study, if you don't have a bedroom, if you're sharing with six brothers and sisters, it's just so difficult. And there's nobody seems to have a real answer. We're looking at some different options. Um, Council in Sutton has set up a an organisation that's not for profit that builds the council homes that takes the rent and reinvests the money in building new council homes it's on quite a small scale for what we need but it certainly appears to be working and also to keep those houses in good condition yeah. and Haringey regularly I, and I talk about Haringey because I know it best and I speak to people there regularly and we go into the houses of people who say come and look at this my house is run by the homes for Haringey and you go in and there's mould and there's peeling paint and they're living in really awful conditions and nothing is done about it. I mean, you can knock down entire estates and rebuild them. But if you don't maintain them, we'll be back here again in 10, 15 years time. Yeah. And looking after the houses is also a really important part of the budgeting mm. when you're building. Mm. And that isn't done. It's just not long term enough. I'm yeah. so sorry, Natalie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I, I just think because you brought up schools, there's a sort of whole area of policy that we haven't talked about yet that I think is absolutely crucial. And, and we have to talk more about. And that's education. Um, and... You, when I go into schools, universities and colleges, as I do a lot, the biggest issue is when I say schools should not be exam factories in which pupils are forced through exam after exam after exam. And the and, teachers. Well, and the teachers. <laughs> and, and we have you know a huge mental health crisis among our young people. And that whole exam focus and the narrowing of the curriculum away from creative subjects mm-hmm. is certainly part of that. Now, you know, I mean, what... We've had certainly the two largest parties have very much followed in the ideology of free schools, academies, Ofsted, a very narrow focus on exams. You know, what we're saying in the Green Party is we should abolish SATs, 
we should certainly not be doing the baseline test on four-year-olds, which is just dreadful. Um, we should abolish Ofsted. Um, we should have schools that give people an education for life, mm-hmm. not just for exams. And you know, Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, has done a lot of work, and we finally had a victory over the government in terms of sex and relationship education that... We've got to make sure it ends up being quality and properly enforced, but making it statutory. But we've also got to look much more broadly in education and things like nutrition, cooking, um, personal finance. Lots of people, I, I ran into someone at university who said, the first time I borrowed money, I didn't know you had to pay back more than you borrowed. And if you come from a family that's never had access to credit, you wouldn't necessarily. No. And you know, one of my pet subjects, first aid. Why does anyone leave school without having at least the basics of first aid? It might... For many of us, at some point in our life, that will be the most important thing you could possibly learn. Yeah, well, we're so, nodding our heads here in agreement to everything you said there. Yeah, no, and then Dawn, have you, you've probably got a whole raft of things on education, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Well, one of the things that we would like to do is slim down the national curriculum significantly to allow teachers to be creative, because a lot of teachers are very creative and imaginative. And I remember some of my teachers and what they used to do with us and where we used to go. And we went to Pendle to study the Pendle witches and, you know, how kids get excited about things like that. And then we'd write stories and we went to Haworth to stay in a youth hostel and visit Bronte Country and again to write stories. And our English teachers were really creative. I have quite a few friends who are teachers now and one of them is a science teacher and she used to take her kids badger watching and they'd have a night, a Friday night and they'd go and they'd stay out late and watch and now she just says there is so much paperwork it would take her three hours to fill in the paperwork to take a class of 20 to go badger watching for a night and she's got young children now and she just says it's a step too far I can't be bothered and to hear that from somebody who... I'm sure she's one of the best teachers you could ever meet and so enthusiastic. And that's taken away. And that isn't just taken away from her and her having fun because she's obsessed with beasts and animals, but also from all of those children she will teach over the years. And she just doesn't have the time because of all the administrative work involved now and all of the curriculum and all of the exams and all of the pressure. So what's the fun in going to school? Yeah, I mean... You, you guys are so on the same wavelength on so many things. You're going to get us to coalesce um, now. Yeah, I'm going to get us <laughs> well, well, well I, I don't know. I, I do have to say tuition fees at yeah, this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, University yeah, tuition yeah. fees. Stand, no, I'll say it as well. Tuition <laughs> fees were shit. Um, I mean, for, for me, it's like, you know, I, 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 I always forget which TV debate it was, but um, I think it was Caroline and Nicola Sturgeon and um, Applied Cymru leader. Um, Leanne Wood. Leanne Wood. Oh, so close. Um, you know, they had that, that hug at the end of the um, debate. I think that was probably and me, actually. Was it you? There you go. I, <laughs> it, it I was told you I'd get it 15, wrong. Yep. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yes, because, because the interesting thing was there's a famous photo of that and much focus was put on Ed Miliband standing off to the side and not being included. But, of course, everyone took the photo from that angle and not from the other side where also Farage was but not included. But yeah. your key thing there is that women generally are less confrontational and more inclusive. Well, I don't know inclusive. about women. I think, oh, sorry, what I I think meant, generally, because, I mean, yeah. if you look at uh, I didn't the want to make it why, like a, a feminist no, issue. No. It was more along the lines of why can't we well, I think be, you should you make know, a feminist yeah. issue, really. If, if you look yeah. at the reasons that you get fewer women in Parliament and fewer women going to the, the top echelons within their businesses, but Parliament particularly, it's very confrontational and very yeah. argumentative. And actually women... We may disagree wholeheartedly on many things, but there is common ground and you can find that. And I think sometimes women are more prepared to search for that. And I don't want to generalise because there are men that are also happy to do that. I'm not. You're not? No, I'm an arsehole. Okay, well, that's fantastic. You'd be an (laughs) arsehole. I will then. (laughs) But again, 
I think women can be quite accommodating and try yeah. to find new ways of doing things. And I think that's something that's really important for our parliament and right across society. Mm. And then you don't get things like this. So I'm going to display the Evening Standard today. Okay. Where there was a nice city sexist party that's been all over the news. It was apparently to raise money for charity and they were infiltrated by the Financial Times who got a woman employed. It was an all-men party yeah. and the only women there were 130 hostesses hired for the evening, told what to wear. And then I think I saw somebody somewhere say the men were told to get stuck in. And it's just disgusting. Yeah. And there are charities now that are refusing to take the money that was raised the at this Ormond party. Great Street Hospital. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, but I think you, what we have to do is look at the, the structural things behind this. And I was actually mm. last night, the Fawcett Society, um, the, the premier yes. women's group in, in Britain, had a great report out on all issues around discrimination. And one of the things that that meeting focused on particularly is the fact calling for misogyny to be classified as a hate crime. Yep. Uh, but also we were focusing on someone from the wonderful 50-50 Parliament campaign there was which is calling for a gender balanced at least parliament um and you know we're, we're at 30 percent now we're way way down the, the global league tables in mm. terms of number of women mps and at the current rate of progress it'll take us 50 years to get to equality 50 that's that's fewer than i thought actually it has come down but you know and of course the problem is that that assumes that we keep going in a forward direction at the yes. same rate which is yeah. which is May a large assumption well large assumption but you know, again we come back to parliament not being representative of the community and that's you know there's much broader issues of that parliament is also not representative of disabled people no. it's not representative of our different ethnic minority communities it's not representative of people from say, different socioeconomic backgrounds no. um and we come back to not being a democracy and not having a situation where people feel like they're represented. And that really is where you underlyingly keep coming back to. Yep. Um, I actually spoke at a, a event in Sheffield where there was an American professor who wrote a book saying that democracy had failed and his case studies were the US and the UK and I'm afraid I did rather tear some strips off him because, you know, we have the US where Donald Trump got fewer popular votes than Hillary Clinton but ended up as president. We have Britain where 68% of votes in the last election didn't count. Before we give up on democracy, let's try it. Yeah, yeah that's good. That's probably a good good, good place to end, actually. But um, before we do, it, it'd be nice to just, like, maybe you guys have got, like, a, a, I don't know, a closing thing you want to say about anything to do with anything. It doesn't even have to be about politics. Hey, have a nice week and go and walk your dog or something. I don't know, you know? Well, uh, you know, I, it will have to be about politics. And we haven't talked a great deal about environmental issues, perhaps beyond plastics. And I think you, we have to live within the physical limits of this one fragile planet. That's not politics. That's physics. What we can do by changing our society to get to one planet living, we can also create a far better life where people have security, freedom from fear, certainly about the life of their children and grandchildren. Um, so going green doesn't mean giving things up. It means gaining yeah. a life, a future, security for everybody. That's Natalie Bennett, former leader of the Green Party there. That's very good. My goodness, I like that a lot. Um, sorry, you don't, have to, you don't have to match that, Dawn. You could just say goodbye if you like. You know? <laughs> I'm going to. Well, when do you go out? When do you publish? Um, tomorrow. So that's Thursday. Tomorrow. The, Thursday, the something of... This Something. is just frantically yeah. pressing the phone here. <laughs> I don't know what day it is. Well, what, <laughs> I, what I would say, it's uh, slightly different, and it's definitely um, 
a message about going out and doing something for yourself or with your family and go and explore a park somewhere where you live it doesn't have to be far away so it can be environmentally aware because you can walk to your park but having some time with the people that you care about and doing something fun and exploring something new because we live in a fantastic country and going out and enjoying it in whatever way you choose to do so is a great way to spend your weekend and a great way to start your year brilliant nice one on that note um See you soon, guys, and thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So, yeah, there you go. What a wonderful way to end the show. I mean, honestly, two fantastic minds there. And Natalie, obviously, is like a really well-versed politician. My God. I mean, what, what really struck me was towards the end of the interview was how I, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't, actually have any time with her to just sit down and talk to her about her political life and I felt like a fool at the end of it to be honest because I thought my god you know we could have had an hour together um just talking just chewing chewing the fat and how much she's achieved in her life and some of the ups and downs she's had along the way and obviously you know we're gonna I'm gonna try and arrange that because it was you get to the end of a conversation a, a you know a three-way panel chat and you're sort of thinking to yourself my god this is a absolute consummate professional here this this is like this is a treat I hope you guys felt like that because it did feel like that to me it felt like a real treat to have Natalie on the show and and having Dawn there as well was absolutely fantastic both of them absolutely on form it was a fantastic um, evening for me. So yeah, and what's what's coming up? What's coming up? Well, next week I'm going to bring you a, um, a conversation that I had with uh, David Runciman and Helen Thompson of uh, Cambridge University. They're both political professors there. Um, David's the head of the politics there at Cambridge University. I went up there quite a while ago now, about a month or so ago, and we had a really cool, informative chat. And we just talked about their their podcast. Talking Politics, which you can find on you know, all, all your normal platforms. And it's a fantastic show. I mean, they go really, they go real intense there, like real highbrow stuff. And it's reasonably accessible as well. And I I, I often find myself uh, stopping it, pausing it, and then having a look on on the old internet for like the, the acres of facts that, are, that they present. I mean, they do, they do a great show. Talking Politics, check it out if you can. But yeah, and, and then the future, I don't know what's coming down the line, but like I said, you've got that to look forward to. And if if you've got a spare minute or two, you can always go back and listen to previous episodes because we've got a whole factory, a warehouse of episodes for you to listen to. And yeah, so I'm going to go. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep it, going to keep it short because I've got, I've got stuff to do. I've, I've got, um, what have I got to do? I've got to get up early tomorrow Hitting the gardens tomorrow over in uh, Richmond in, in South London, and it's freezing. It's I don't know how the hell I'm going to stay warm. I think I'm just going to have to run on the spot again. That has I have been doing that this week. Oh my god! Anyway, whatever you've been doing, I hope you've been doing it well. Look after yourself, and I'll see you on I don't know on the flip side somewhere. Who knows? Who knows? Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>